Hello and welcome to Node Up episode 72. Uh, we're going to be talking about WebGL and today I have an all-star cast of WebGL experts and non-experts. Um, so today we're joined by Hugh Kennedy. Say hello, Hi. Hugh. Hi. Um, Nicola Lysenko. Hello. Uh, Chris Dickinson. Hello. Uh, Elijah Insua. Insua. <laughs> hey. oh, sorry. No, that's no problem. Um, yeah, so guys, would you like to um, just go around and uh, introduce yourselves and uh, you know what you're doing here, basically? Uh, starting with you, Hugh. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm a JavaScript developer at NodeSource. Uh, I've got a background in design. I've been developing with Node for a couple of years, but um, lately I've been moving to almost exclusively front-end work and just using Node for tooling. And I've been doing a bunch of stuff with WebGL as well. Cool. Um, how about you, Nicola? What are you up to? Um, I'm a yeah, uh, I'm a graduate student uh, at the University of Wisconsin. Um, I'm currently uh, teaching a course on computational geometry and trying to get the very last bits of my thesis written up so I can graduate. Uh, and part-time, uh, I do some uh, contracting work uh, lately with Plotly, and I've been helping them uh, build out their 3D data visualization uh, suite of tools. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Um, Chris? Hey, um, I am a JavaScript developer over at Walmart Labs. I work on uh, contributing to Node Core. Um, my involvement with the WebGL world is that uh, I can't help but build and rebuild terrain renderers. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> cool, cool. Uh, and Eli. Hey, um, so I'm a developer at Node Source as well, uh, and I use WebGL mostly for simulation of um, I don't know tool paths and. Uh, industrial machinery. Um, I am quite the noob, though, so keep that in mind. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I am also uh, a noob. Uh, I'm uh, a JavaScript developer at NodeSource. Um, I've, I keep learning Flash. Oh, sorry. keep learning 3D and then uh, forgetting it. Like, I, I did 3D back in Visual Basic with, oh, what was it, like DirectX. And I, I've, I keep doing a whole bunch of 3D stuff, but just never having like a paid project to really do anything with it. So that's why I'm kind of excited about like doing doing WebGL stuff. I've just started dabbling in it, and um, this is like I've, I feel excited about programming again. So uh, yeah, I'm quite excited. So anyway, uh, today's show is sponsored by CodeShip, Lyft Security, and and Jet. So. Uh, CodeShip is a free hosted continuous delivery service focused on simplicity and usability. You can set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all of your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub, Bitbucket, and lets you deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Modulus, and Nojitsu. CodeShip makes continuous delivery so simple and setup only takes about a minute. You can sign up now to get 100 builds every month and five private projects for free. This should allow startups, freelancers, and small teams to get easily started with continuous delivery. For anyone that needs more builds and projects, you can use the discount code NODUP to get 20% off any plan for three months when signing up for a paid subscription. So you can head over to www.codeship.io forward slash NODUP to get started. And don't forget that NODUP discount code to get your 20% off 
All right. So let's get started with part one, which is what is WebGL? So um, does anybody want to explain how WebGL fits into the you know into the scene? We already have OpenGL, and well, yeah, what is WebGL basically? So I'll I'll take a shot at this one. Basically, WebGL is OpenGL ES as it exists for mobile devices, but ported to the web. So it's pretty much a direct translation of the OpenGL ES2 API uh, that is accessible from JavaScript. So you can just uh, spin up a page, create uh, a graphics context, and you can do every single 3D operation that you would see in any you know high-performance mobile game. Um, so, so what's the What's the difference between like OpenGL and OpenGL ES? What what is what is OpenGL ES? Yeah, so there are a couple of different versions of OpenGL. It has a fairly long and storied history. Uh, you know, it's been um, managed lately by uh, the Kronos Group, which is some industry board. Uh, I don't know much about their internal workings and how it's all kind of like run behind the scenes, but they basically publish a specification, which is uh, agreed upon by all of the different vendors and you know graphics companies and basically OpenGL is a sort of common API or abstraction that people can use to write uh, applications that run on graphics cards or target graphics hardware and so um, there's sort of two main branches to OpenGL there's like classic OpenGL which you know is sort of the first one to come into existence and uh, it's been around for you know decades now and it's just this uh, you know, ancient piece of software that's continued to grow and evolve and advance over time. And this is the one that has probably the most up-to-date features and targets like the cutting-edge graphics cards on PCs and, you know, next-generation game consoles. The other version of OpenGL is OpenGL ES, which was a, sort of an attempt to make a reboot of OpenGL for uh, mobile devices. And so this is a much more streamlined set of features. So it removes things like the fixed function pipeline and a lot of old legacy components and targets uh, explicitly like shaders and programmable graphics hardware. And uh, it also is uh, smaller so it's you know hypothetically easier to secure and easier to make it uh, efficient and optimized for you know special devices. So sort of like a slimmer focused subset of OpenGL uh, without all so the... Is the so is there stuff that you can do in WebGL that you can't do in OpenGL, or uh, is, it st is it strictly a subset of OpenGL? Relative to the most recent version of OpenGL, OpenGL ES could be thought of uh, conceptually as a subset, but there are still like a few syntactic differences. Like some of the you know sort of like language of the shaders isn't quite right. Like there are a few default things that don't match. But for you know ninety nine percent of what the API is you could basically consider the features in OpenGL ES to be equivalent to a subset of the features in OpenGL mod maybe some syntactic tweaks. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and how does uh, WebGL compare to like uh, other competing technologies like Flash or Unity, like in terms uh -huh. of like performance and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so compared to any of these other technologies, at the end of the day, I mean, they're all still going to be targeting graphics cards and some form of native hardware rendering. So the level of performance that you can get with well-written WebGL or hypothetically well-written Unity code is probably about the same if you really just like optimize them all the way out to the you know fullest extent. Uh, the main difference, though, is that WebGL 
can be written completely in JavaScript, and so it requires no native plugin. And also compared to like what you can do with just like Flash or Canvas graphics, because WebGL is basically targeting the graphics card, uh, it can run way faster than like sort of the SVG or like you know DOM manipulation or you know Flash type animations that people are used to seeing in web pages. So you can write applications which are you know every bit as good as a native or you know desktop application that you could download and run on your computer because you can use exactly the same hardware APIs that you would have available uh, in you know C or C++ or uh, Java or whatever other system you would be working with. So could you theoretically implement, so for example, like Chrome within WebGL, like the Chrome rendering engine? You could. It would be a very big project. <laughs> Hypothetically, yes. <laughs> oh, that would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to do that. <laughs> I think uh, that you would probably, um, you know, realize that there's a reason that, like, even Chrome didn't start from scratch, right? It started from WebKit, you know, before it kind of, like, built all the way up to what it is. And I think... Uh, well, you could possibly re-implement everything on top of uh, WebGL. Um, there are some things that become more difficult than others to do. But probably a more reasonable target would be, say, like Canvas 2D API. Like, um, there's really like nothing in the Canvas 2D API that you couldn't actually do in WebGL. And actually, like many aspects of the Canvas API could perhaps even be done in WebGL even faster by replacing maybe like some of the string parsing things with maybe more optimized. Uh, like direct WebGL routines. So you could certainly implement like, you know, SVG rendering or canvas rendering or even the whole browser in WebGL, but it just becomes like how big of a problem do you want to take on and, you know, how much work do you want to do? And there is there is a slight perp hit um, over like OpenGL ES where the OpenGL context that WebGL runs is in a separate thread and usually most implementations batch up commands from JavaScript and has have to do some like bounds checking on them. Which is actually kind of good because it ensures that applications that you're downloading from the web are actually secure and won't crash your browser. Yeah, so that's or like, your whole computer. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually a good point. It's because um even though WebGL is sort of uh it is essentially the same API, but it's also uh has more security features built on top of it. So one early criticism of uh WebGL that you saw all over the web was you had people, you know, like I mean even very high profile uh personalities like John Carmack saying WebGL is gonna be this unmitigated disaster and will create a whole new class of security vulnerabilities. In practice that doesn't seem to have been borne out. And the reason is that uh, a lot of work has gone into making WebGL implementations really solid. So there's a lot of testing and verification and a lot of like excellent work by teams at Google and Mozilla uh, that have made like WebGL today something that's actually in many ways much more uniform and standard than even OpenGL. And so uh, even though there is some extra bound checking and performance hits, the flip side of this is that it's also more consistent. So many vendors will implement OpenGL ES features slightly differently or it will have different defaults on you know, different platforms and hardware. And you always spend all this time like hacking around to you know, get it to work on all the different systems. With WebGL, all of that horrible stuff is actually taken care of for you. And so it's relatively solid in the sense that it's pretty hard to crash it or get it to do something like really bad. And it also is very deterministic. So there's not any undefined behavior or like weird edge cases sitting around or like uh, implementation inconsistency. So it's sort of like the first real, you know, write once, run everywhere, OpenGL API that we've really had. So that's really nice, even though it is capability-wise basically the same as OpenGL ES. 
another nice side effect of that is that it's also sort of pushing, making uh, the hardware vendors more aware of security concerns. Whereas before, they could kind of like write that off as like, oh, you've installed the application, so uh, your driver code is just going to be trustworthy. Like, we're just going to trust whatever application runs here. And now, uh, I think Brendan Jones in particular has talked about uh, like communicating more with the uh, hardware vendors and like uh, shoring up security in the actual drivers. So it's, it's actually pushing all of uh, the OpenGL implement- implementations forward, which is cool. So... So WebGL, um, I mean, what what can you use it for other than you know the obvious things like fancy rotating globes on your web page? <laughs> there's um there's a ton of different applications. Uh, they're not immediately obvious until you start looking into it. But uh, for example, like Eli's been doing his hardware stuff, which he could probably explain better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can attempt to explain this in a bite size. Um, so. This thing is called the G-Code Raymarch Simulator, and you can find that on GitHub. Um, but basically, the idea is that it's um, it's based on some dude whose name I cannot say, but basically he has this whole talk about um, rendering entire worlds with two triangles, and he does this using an approach called raymarching. And essentially, raymarching is like ray tracing, where you have objects in the scene, and they're all specified by distance fields, and it gets really complicated and kind of confusing. But if you are interested in the show notes, there's a link to the slides that he did um, at NV um, Scene 2008. But basically, what this thing does is it it interprets um, this stuff called G code, which is used to control um, CNC machines, and it actually renders the results um, in a WebGL context. So you can see where the machine is actually going to make cuts into like a piece of wood or something. And it's really nice for kind of simulating something before you waste material and time. Cool. Anybody else want to like throw in some like cool, uh, non-obvious uh, uses for WebGL? Yeah, I mean, I'll also point out that, um, I mean, WebGL at the end of the day is just a graphics API. And so there's a lot of uh, focus right now on how you can use it to draw like 3D things. But it's also uh, quite capable as a 2D graphics API. So I would say that for building things like 2D video games or you know, objects where you have like lots of scrolling and multiple layers of parallax and all kinds of crazy stuff going on, uh, you can usually get way better performance with WebGL than what you would be able to get using, say, Canvas or you know, CSS trickery uh, to achieve the scrolling same Scrolling websites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you can like actually many- have... A scrolling yeah. website which doesn't uh, struggle on every device. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How it, it, and we are note that this podcast is being recorded in 2014. Uh, we are still struggling with having scrolling effects on websites. Uh, it is a <laughs> sad state of affairs. So um, uh, there's another technology, uh, OpenCL or WebCL. Um, what's what's the deal with that? Yeah, so uh, OpenCL and uh, uh, by extension WebCL were sort of an attempt to standardize um, the same features that were exposed through CUDA, which was a a product that NVIDIA uh, created for programming their graphics cards. And so uh, CUDA and, uh, you know, the whole idea of like using graphics cards for scientific computing kicked off something of like uh, a mini revolution and a lot of uh, like high-performance computing, uh, because basically uh, it turns out that graphics cards, which are you know like really good at rendering you know billions of programs you know per second when you're drawing all these like little pixels, 
like you can take that same uh, number crunching and like memory, you know, pushing power and apply it, you know, very productively to actually important scientific computing problems. And uh, like people, you know, just went crazy with this and, you know, like thousands and thousands of papers have been written and there are all kinds of systems that now use this stuff all over the place. And, you know, like a lot of this like deep uh, belief network or, you know, sort of like machine learning stuff in many ways has actually been kicked off by the uh, availability of cheap, high performance graphics cards, which you could program using CUDA. So that was a really big deal. But one of the problems with CUDA is that it's really tied uh, specifically to NVIDIA's hardware. So in some sense, it's not really an open standard. And so the other big players, Intel and uh, AMD and uh, also Apple, uh, wanted to try to make something that was not going to be locked to one specific vendor. And so they came up with the system called OpenCL, which uh, on paper sounds like a great idea, right? It was sort of like an attempt to make a CUDA that was not... NVIDIA specific, but um, it's kind of struggling a little bit. And part of the problem is that many OpenCL implementations so far don't actually use GPUs. They simply use like uh, CPUs to like actually simulate what the GPU does. And it's just not had the same level of adoption because there's still like a ton of CUDA code. So it's kind of floundering. Doesn't that doesn't that kind of like defeat the purpose? Like it wasn't the whole point exactly. of I mean yeah, yeah uh, the, the whole point was to do it, but the, they started out with an implementation that would run on the CPU because that was the easiest thing to just, you know, bootstrap and get it up and running. But it's just kind of been slow to get it, you know, right. get off the ground. It hasn't really, you know, picked up and started rolling on its own. And WebCL kind of has a similar problem uh, where it just hasn't really been able to kind of get the momentum going, you know, and enough people to like really like get behind it and make it happen. And part of the problem is that in OpenGL ES3 and in later versions of OpenGL, uh, a lot of the features in OpenCL are kind of redundant because you can basically use a compute shader and the asynchronous like read operations to just do everything that you would do in OpenCL through OpenGL. So, like lately, the question is just kind of like, why bother with this? You know, I can just use OpenGL and I don't have to worry about it, or I can just use CUDA where I already have like maybe a big pile of code that already does what I want to do. So. Yeah, I so think, uh, you, uh, I've noticed that. I mean, you know, wh whenever I'm writing shaders, I'm like, oh man, this is like a this is a really nice API for like for maths, and you know, and it runs like super fast, like in, in, insane fast. So, I mean, what what's the main problem with getting? Uh, I remember speaking to Hugh about this a, a while back, um, and Hugh, you were saying that there was uh, one of the problems with using WebGL for doing computing stuff is. Um, like just basically getting the values back out because it doesn't sort of have like an interface for like yeah. getting values back out. Is that correct or um, did I misunderstand? So it's not good if you want to do stuff in real time simply because uh, reading back from the GPU, it's like a blocking operation. So you block the okay. whole uh, browser while you wait for all of the GPU data to come through. So if right. you're doing that 60 frames a second, it'll, it'll stall. But it's good so, if you've got like a huge amount of data. Because um, I think uh, actually the first time I met you, Hugh, was when you were like sitting there um, building your <laughs> Voxel JS. Um, the what was that, Hugh? Oh yeah, that was the, um, terrain generation using uh, shader in 3JS. Yeah, and you turned you you made like this insane performance improvement by moving all of the terrain generation code onto the onto the GPU. Uh, so, I was very impressed. It, yeah. it was faster for generating that specific type of 
terrain. Like you couldn't do that in JavaScript realistically. But at the same time, it was still slower than a lot of other uh, terrain generation code simply because you had to wait for the GPU. Okay, cool. All right, so with, um, I mean, WebGL seems to be getting like a, a lot of traction recently, but it's actually been around for a while. Um, when, when did WebGL, when did it exist from? I noticed like the tutorials, some of the tutorials I'm doing are like from like 2011 or something, which seems like uh, eons in web time. Anybody um, know? Yeah, it's been around for a long time. It, it actually came out of uh, some like earlier project from Google. I I want to say it was called like Canvas 3D or something like that. And then it sort of uh, kind of evolved and then became standardized and then mutated into OpenGL. But OpenGL has been around for quite some time now. I think, I mean, I want to guess like 2009 maybe or okay. something like that. That sounds so accurate. Yeah. <laughs> They came out with that really awesome uh, island demo for Canvas 3D. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what's the what's the reason why it's sort of? I'm guessing the reason why it's it's picking up now is because it's getting sort of a decent browser support. Um, I mean, what's sort of the landscape there for for support for WebGL? And also, do we have that same kind of problem where everybody implements it one way and then one browser implements it a slightly different way? So far. Uh, I don't think that that problem uh, is really there. And it's because, uh, unlike many of the other uh, web APIs, there is a very thorough conformance test suite, which is maintained by Kronos and uh, Google. And uh, in order to, like, you know, say you've implemented WebGL or, you know, to sort of get certified, you have to pass all of these tests, and they're uh, extremely rigorous. And so that's actually gone a very long way to... Uh, ironing out all the differences across browsers. So WebGL is actually uh, a much more stable and uniform API than many of the other like web APIs that are out there. So it's, uh, uh, it's pretty good. And I think the, the other thing that's kind of really gotten a lot of uh, additional traction for WebGL is that uh, the newest Internet Explorer finally supports it. So, right. so it yeah. It had a, a lot of problems when it first came out, though, from what I can tell. Like anything beyond the standard stuff, if you're using extensions and stuff like that, it would just... Great, but I think it's better now. Yeah, yeah, and there there was also a lot of um, like hand wringing and like you know gnashing of teeth. Like, oh no, is this going to be something that's safe to do? Like, should we really allow you know JavaScript programmers to write three D graphics code? You know, maybe like they're going to find you know some way for people to insert you know malicious code into your web page that can you know read out like extra you know data from your computer and you know. In all honesty, like some people did come up with a few fairly nefarious things. Like there were some kind of clever timing attacks that people were able to figure out to get around like cross-domain validation. Like I think um, uh, uh, that guy uh, Doc uh, from the WebGL channel like had a, a couple of uh, interesting little demos there. But um, you know, it, overall, there have actually been remarkably few uh, terrifying security exploits that have come out of uh, WebGL uh, as a whole. Uh, so I think that a lot of the, you know, sort of like, you know, sky is falling, you know, paranoia doesn't seem to have been too well-founded, right? I mean, this is, but this is my outsider's perspective, too. I don't know, like, I mean, like what kind of chaos and fires people are putting out internally on, like, the Chrome teams and, you know, like the Chronos, like, review boards they are kind of going through and, like, saying, no, you got to change this or whatever. So, so maybe it was a lot worse of a process, right? But, you know, from the outside, it looks like it rolled out relatively well. So, you know, they certainly did a good job. I think a good thing to add um, to the security aspect of that is, or maybe a segue, is the, the whole like iOS thing. 
where you know for years people were like, well, I want to write WebGL and I want to deploy it everywhere, but iOS just will not support um, WebGL for anything except for iAds, and that has changed recently, which is which is a good thing. So now it's it's no longer just oh, there's this one platform that just will not support it. Now it's kind of ubiquitous. It is kind of uh, interesting to note, though, that even as they deployed that, they set all the uh, WebGL like capabilities for all the devices, no matter whether it's an iPad or uh, iPhone or whatever, down to like the minimum for all of them. So even if your iPad can do more than your iPhone, it'll still like have report the same capabilities through WebGL, which is a little weird, but... It's better than nothing. I mean, rendering yeah. 3D in Canvas was the op the alternative, right? Yeah. So it's a better world, and I think there's potential for it, for it to get even better in the future. Yeah, I think yeah. they're still um, they're, they still might be concerned about the security stuff. One thing I've noticed is that the like Mozilla's coming out with a whole bunch of stuff with this ASM JS um, stuff, and m most of the demos that we see for for that are like you know high performance three dimensional games. Does ASM have anything to do with WebGL, or is it just that, I mean, why, why do they keep demoing 3D games? I don't know uh, internally, uh, like, how they um, are making the decisions for what they choose to demo, but I suspect they pick 3D because it's the most impressive. Yeah. But in terms of, like, what the two technologies offer, uh, ASM, JS, and WebGL are two completely separate things, right? Like, they're just completely uh, independent and uh, unrelated. But adding WebGL to the DOM, right, or to HTML5, allows you to do way more interesting stuff with ASMJS than you would have been able to otherwise. So, uh, for example, like a JavaScript port of the Unreal Engine with or without ASMJS would have been completely unthinkable without WebGL. Uh, I mean, you could probably port a game to JavaScript, you know, using mscripten or some other, you know, technique without using ASMJS, uh, and it would still be fine. But the WebGL is probably the uh, critical component that actually enables a lot of these demos to even work in the first place. Mm. To, to cool. chime in here, one other nice thing is that they, they are separate, but they are very much like peanut butter and jelly or uh, Nutella and jelly. Um, <laughs> the more you can do while the GPU is like doing its work, the better. So like ASMJS lets you do more while... Uh, the GPU is off busy doing its thing, drawing the pixels, etc. So they just slot in really nicely together in that respect. But otherwise, yeah, they don't have really much to do with each other directly, yeah, if that makes I, sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I suppose a, another thing that might also be worth pointing out, too, is that the, um, the WebGL API is a little bit different than a lot of the other uh, sort of like DOM APIs and that it doesn't have like a lot of these like methods that take in strings or like, you know, mysterious DOM objects. Like most of the interfaces to the WebGL functions look exactly the same as the raw OpenGL ES stuff. So they'll take like an integer or like a typed array or a buffer or whatever as a parameter. And in that sense, it's much easier to interoperate with WebGL from ASMJS than it is to interoperate with the DOM. And so the other reason, you know, perhaps why you see a lot of um, graphical 3D applications ported is that in some sense it's actually easier to port to WebGL than it is to port to the DOM because the interfaces to WebGL are like lower level, and so they're somewhat simpler actually uh, than like the interfaces to a lot of DOM objects. Mm. Okay, so um, that brings us to our next sponsor spot, Hugh. So Lyft Security, building an application or service is already hard enough. Dealing with security gets in your way. Security doesn't have to be painful, annoying, or frustrating, and you definitely don't have to submit that mountain alone. Adam Baldwin and the team at Lyft Security want to guide developers in building more secure node applications. They founded and run the Node Security Project and already help secure tools you use every day. 
like GitHub and NPM. One core Lyft service provides is security assessments. An assessment helps identify and prioritize bots to improve security and mitigate risk, then offers recommendations and strategies for building more securely in the future. Lyft can help you understand where your app and your team are at in terms of security, then help identify and prioritize bots for improvement, as well as offer recommendations and strategies for building more securely in the future. Lyft Security also created the first Node.js security-focused training, an in-person, hands-on training that leads developers through common vulnerabilities, making sure you understand how to secure the framework of your choice. The next training event will be in London on September 16th. This training will be a joint effort between YLD and Lyft. It will have a special focus on performance and security for large-scale applications and is aimed at software engineers that are looking for hands-on experience in advanced Node.js topics. Register at Lyft Security slash training today as seats are extremely limited. As a NodeUp listener, you can get 20% off by using the discount code NodeUp. If you're interested in bringing a security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft team at liftsecurity.io or Lyft Security on Twitter. All right. So, on to part two. <laughs> what is StackGL? Somebody tell me. All right. I'll take a shot at this one. So StackGL is basically a collection of different modules which attempt to make WebGL development easier and more reusable so that we don't have to keep on resolving the same problems in different frameworks and we can all just, you know, interoperate and share individual pieces of uh, code. The idea So this is, this is a project that you're you're working on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm saying this in these grandiose terms, but really like StackGL is actually like uh, it's pretty much just like you, me, Chris, and uh, Eli, right? So that's actually like what we are. So that's actually like StackGL. Right? <laughs> Plus there's um, also um at Desilaris, like, and there's a few other guys too. And uh, yeah. Actually there's there's many people involved in it. Um, so the the sort of uh, approach with StackGL is to build from the bottom up. So we started from the core problems that you have to deal with in WebGL, like writing shaders and creating buffers and textures and pushing data to and from the GPU. And we tried to just build abstractions that go from those up to tasks like draw some terrain or draw an object or something. And the idea is to make each of these tasks reusable, right? So we can take the components and swap them out or place them. So I mean, what I'm I'm picking up from this is that you're sort of applying the like the Node or Unix philosophy to many modules, distributed solving of problems to the problem space of uh, you know WebGL. And so rather than building from the top down, so you know rather than building a big framework which solves all of your problems, you're um, just solving all of the little problems in in various different ways. Um, and yeah, just ex experimenting. Does that sound roughly? Yes, it, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Now you, you mentioned that you wanted to move beyond 3D engines, and uh, that that was an interesting statement. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's um, a kind of conventional view about how you should do 3D today, which is that you basically like either build or buy some enormous 3D engine which solves all of your problems and then manipulate this 3D engine and it draws everything and does all the graphics for you and it's this massive mega framework that you know just does everything so you have tools like the unreal engine which you know will basically do all of the uh, 3D stuff from physics to rendering and like it has all these different complicated material models and animation tools and all of this crazy stuff that's like built into it 
And so the idea would be that this engine would just take care of all of the 3D things for you. And, and well, so what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, what, why don't we want that? I and mean, what's the alternative that you're proposing? So um, I think that there's a pretty good analogy between 3D engines and frameworks for web applications. So in the same way that people have started to move away from this idea of using things like, you know, Sencha or these like giant frameworks full of gadgets for building their web apps, right, towards maybe sort of a more modular, reusable style through tools like NPM, this same idea could be applied to 3D engines. So... It's, it's nice to have a small module approach because it means that you are building the solution to your problem, not trying to make your solution fit what the framework's idea of the problem is. So you're not right. molding your problem to fit the solution. You're actually like building the solution around your problem. Maybe, um, maybe we should talk about, I mean, where, where did this start? Uh, so you, know, you guys have all come to somehow found each other through the internet. Um, you know, how did this little love nest begin? So we um, we were all uh, contributing to the Voxel JS project, which Max Elton started. Oh, I think right. yeah, a couple of years ago now. Yeah, it's um, a few years old. Yeah, yeah, and so that was built with three JS and Browserify. And probably our biggest frustration while we were dealing with that is that three JS was like big. It was our big dependency compared to like everything else, which was being split up and very modular. And that had a like bunch of different side effects, like the builds got slower, and if we wanted to do things in a way that three didn't accommodate, you'd have to work around it really like <laughs> you'd have a lot of struggle trying to work around it right okay um so what like what, what kinds of problems can you can you talk about you know like yeah specific specific issues that you're having? Well, one problem is that uh, between modules, uh, different versions of 3 would get included. And since they, 3 has this concept of having its own primitives for things like vectors, uh, you would end up with different versions of these things being passed between modules. So you'd either have to like, agree up, up front to cast everything that's coming in to your specific version of 3's primitives, or you'd write it around JavaScript primitives and have to do this weird, like, okay... Right now, it's an array of three uh, floats or whatever, and now I have to like trans translate that into a three vector three uh, and hand that back to whatever engine. So there's a lot of like um, unnecessarily unnecessary like marshalling and unmarshalling at the module. Uh, I guess like the membrane between the modules, which is kind of frustrating. I see. With the three JS, another issue that we kind of hit was um, uh, the geometry data types in 3JS are all basically hard-coded. And this is done for, you know, like their own internal reasons, but uh, they basically want to support things like ray casting and other operations. And so to do that, they need to have some representation of the geometry in their own internal format. But the problem is that for things like voxel data, where you have, you know, uh, billions of, uh, or like, you know, hundreds of millions of like voxels like floating around, um, it becomes really expensive and wasteful to use things like a full floating point number to describe, uh, you know, each of the X, Y, Z components of uh, a voxel on the GPU. You know, when, for example, within a single chunk, maybe you only need one byte per X, Y, and Z. So these sorts of like optimizations, like changing your vertex format around, or like later on adding effects like ambient occlusion or texture atlases on top of 3JS, 
became very difficult because all of this functionality was encoded deep inside the shaders and materials and all of the parts of the uh, 3JS engine. So I still don't actually have a very good pathway right now for adding things like texture atlases with uh, tiling textures, right? Like a fairly you know, straightforward feature, you would think. But in order to add something like that to 3JS, it would require reworking all of the places in 3JS where it does its like logic for texture lookups for you know, different uh, faces and materials. And so uh, it just becomes very difficult to like go beyond, you know, to from like the sort of like early demos of like VoxelJS to do more complicated, you know, dynamic geometry with uh, all kinds of optimizations or fancy lighting effects thrown on top of it. And so it just That's kind it. of like hit like sort of like um, you know, like we could do so much with 3JS, but just going beyond that and getting to like the next level required like you know changing huge chunks of the 3JS core infrastructure that was basically walled off within 3JS. Yeah, I mean that's sort of that's classic, you know, frameworks versus that's the the classic framework problem, you know, where it, the framework allows you to get us, you know, sort of off the ground really easily, and um, but it sort of ends up, you know, getting in your way as your project develops. Um, you know, it, it's not this isn't really a specific issue with 3JS. It's just an issue with you know pulling in a, a single monolithic dependency. Um, that you're building your entire application around, um, I believe. Yeah, probably for so, me, the, yeah. the the biggest pain point for me dealing with 3JS was when you were working with shaders. So they had all the, the lighting built in and everything was worked out for you, but the moment you wanted to use your own shaders for like vertex displacement, you will end up having to write everything from scratch. So then you'd be back at square one working out how to do your lighting and then pull in all of that information from 3. Right. Yeah, so okay. I'm, I'm kind of a noob, as I mentioned before, um, but I find that 3JS, like, man, it's, it's pretty easy to get a cube spinning. You know, it's just like it's a few lines of code and you're ready to go. However, I find that it's, it's the same with most frameworks, right, where you use maybe 10% of the framework. But, I mean, this, this shouldn't be your primary concern, but the, like, the page weight goes up, you know, because you have to include the entire, the entire thing. Um, I don't know, that's just it's kind of my point of view on the thing, and that's why I'm so interested in StackGL. I think eventually we need something that's like 3JS, but it's composed of all of these small modules. Yeah, that, that I think is the, the dream, is that eventually we would have something that could match and uh, perhaps even surpass all of the features in 3JS, but uh, it would be modular in the sense that, you know, even if there was some high-level you know, thing that could even be thought of or look something like a 3D engine, you would at least be able to drill down and deconstruct it all the way to the fundamental pieces and then, you know, reassemble it as you would need to. And I think the reason why you would want to, you know, allow people to, you know, sort of like rewrite their engine or, you know, reformulate it based on their particular application is that inevitably you're going to come across some problem in graphics where what you need to change is just going to touch like a bunch of different layers on this whole stack of uh, different operations. And so if you have that whole stack built out of, you know, tiny, you know, modular reusable pieces, then you can just take apart and keep the pieces that you like. And then for the pieces that need to be replaced or modified, you can just swap those out, you know, turn them into, uh, you know, like some new thing or like modify them or However, uh, you would need to change it. Uh, so, for example, if you were, you know, going to try 
using StackGL to say, you know, uh, implement a voxel game and you wanted to add that texturing uh, feature with the tiling, you could just use a, a module that just implements the shader code for doing the tiling and you could have another module which generates those tile maps and uh, just plug that into your engine and it would be ready to go. And there would be very little like uh, pain in the change of your code. You know? And the, the other nice thing about, uh, about this is that you know, it allows you to, you've got all of your, if you've got things which don't actually require any GPU stuff, um, you, know, you can just have them isolated and you know, working all on their own. Uh, for example, I've seen, I've seen people pull 3JS into, into a project um, just so that they can get access to you know, uh, the 3JS math functions. You know, that's, that's not ideal. Yeah, and yeah. file loaders is the other big one that you see people using 3JS for. So 3JS has like a bunch of these like uh, file parsers for a whole bunch of different formats, which is fantastic work, and it would be great to be able to reuse that. But unfortunately, they are all tied inextricably to the 3JS framework itself. So if you want to just use like the OBJ parser or the you know Collada parser or whatever, uh, you have to pull in like the entire 3JS framework. And you can't use just that parser. It also does, they don't those parsers don't fit in with like the node um, like stream concepts. Um, it's like okay, we have the entire buffer, send it through, and then we get a bunch of three stuff back. Like it'd be cool if you could like feed it data, you know, as it comes in from wherever it's coming. Yeah, but I mean, we should point out that like uh, you know we're not hating on three JS here. Like I mean, like, like you said, uh, Eli, like, it, it makes getting getting a cube onto the screen and actually moving it around you know you you can do that in a you know a very small uh, amount of code um you know and and you know yeah Hugh, did you have anything to say about this uh yeah absolutely i mean like 3 has done a really fantastic job of making webgl accessible for everybody and as a result it's got a huge community um it's really approachable um, one good and bad thing is that uh, it's got market saturation at the moment with WebGL. So um, it's super easy to find 3JS specific tutorials, but not necessarily as easy to find WebGL specific tutorials. Yeah, that's a big problem. Like It's almost like they're synonymous. Uh, when people mention WebGL, they don't mean WebGL, they mean 3, 3JS. Like, uh, for, yeah, uh, I absolutely. I yeah, yeah. and I, I, I think I was reading that's a book the other day. Yeah, on on WebGL, and it was not on web. Well, the first chapter was on WebGL, but the every other chapter was on 3JS, and I was like, no, nah, that's not what it. That's not what I signed up for. <laughs> but I, I mean, I guess that's a sign that 3JS is obviously doing something right in terms of its API and documentation and everything else. Like it's on the right track. Yeah, everybody seems to love it. I mean, maybe maybe they're right. Uh, uh, <laughs> is, is everybody on, in here, are we the ones with the problem? Yeah, well, I think that it's important to realize that for 95%, uh, I mean, this is just a, a number I'm kind of making up, but my, my estimation is that for most problems that people want to solve with uh, WebGL, uh, it's really, they just have like some 3D model or object or you know, like uh, like scan or something, and they just want to take that like little three D gadget and just stick it up on a web page, put some materials on it and like special effects, and make it look pretty, and then just have people like uh, spin it around and look at it. 
And for that particular problem, 3JS is perfect, right? I mean, like there are you know tons of things though where it's literally just like a 3D model viewer. That's it. Like you just want to draw a single 3D part, you know, and just like put as many awesome special effects as you can possibly throw at it. And 3JS is great for those types of problems. Right. But like, so you're saying that it's not not good for things like uh, you know maybe if you were going to build a game, you might not build it in 3JS. I think you would probably run into problems. Like, I mean, one problem you run into with games is that games have uh, usually fairly complicated states. So you have uh, like a bunch of different entities moving around, you know, and each of them has like their own, you know, position and orientation and velocity and angular momentum, and they're all interacting. And you know, one problem you run into with 3JS is that when you use 3JS, you're sort of forced into its concept of a, a scene graph and uh, it's in many ways somewhat similar to what you get with like a DOM or a type of framework uh, situation where you have to kind of like store all of your data in some sense in that framework or like in the DOM. And so like if you have like a game and you have like a bunch of different objects moving around, you end up having to do this sort of like uh, data synchronization dance, you know, where you change a property you know, inside like your like model that your game is using for its data, then you have to go through and then like, okay, go in 3JS and then change the same variable in the 3JS custom data type and, you know, update it like across all of these like different scenes and copies of everything. And it becomes uh, very cumbersome and difficult to do that. And also, uh, you know, because the way 3JS sort of manages like all of its like different scenes and materials, you know, if you want to do some sort of like custom geometry format or, you know, something like a little more exotic than like one of like the built-in sort of 3JS like, you know, buffer geometries or meshes that you get, uh, it just becomes uh, really difficult to like add that into 3JS. So right. it is, it is I mean, worth noting so, though, actually. Um, I think Mr. Doob is working on a game at the moment. So yeah. that might be an interesting example of... Uh, how 3GS works around those sort of problems. I mean, what, how do you guys uh, that, propose, I mean, what's your solution to, to this stuff? I mean, if you don't have a scene graph, um, you know, what, what, do you, what do you have? And what uh, does that have? Uh, you, whatever you would like it to have is the answer because you can just use your existing um, data types and uh, objects in your game and since you're the one who's basically issuing all the draw calls, not some game engine, uh, you can just go through and iterate through your own data structures and just draw them. So uh, in a sense, what you can think of is that it's more of a kind of uh, functional approach where instead of like, you know, binding a bunch of state in some external object that you're going to be updating in a sort of like retained mode type API, uh, I mean, and you could build something like that on top of StackGL for sure. The StackGL API is maybe closer to a more immediate mode API since it's closer to how WebGL actually works, which is that you would just take your objects as they are represented in your game or your uh, project or whatever and just traverse your data, you know, perhaps using some data structure you know, that would also be a module to call out the objects that are not visible and just draw them. You know? And you can do it uh, you know, ordering them by shaders or you know, vertex buffers, and you can apply instancing and all the other different optimizations that you would like in order to draw them in whatever way is most efficient. But it's basically you would just define the function that renders them. To right. also so, add to that a little, yep. uh, it, I think uh, conceptually, uh, 3JS builds from the scene graph they'd like to see down to the GL primitives. 
and SACGL uh, builds from the GL primitives back up to the scene graph you'd like to see. Um, so it's just kind of different directions there. I think a lot of the scene graph to GL uh, approach kind of originates from more traditional 3D programming where you might want to swap out the underlying like graphics driver underneath. So like you, you can switch it out for DirectX, or you can switch it out for uh, OpenGL underneath. Um, and since we're kind of limited or constrained in options in the uh, browser world to just WebGL, it becomes more viable to build from the, the GL conception of the world out to the scene graph, if that makes sense. Right. So the problems that you guys are solving with StackGL, uh, I mean, are there other things that are not 3JS which you know, may have solved this problem? Um, I mean, is there anything else out there that's doing um, you know, modular stuff? Um, as far as I know, none of them are really taking the same type of approach as uh, StackGL, but there are um, plenty of uh, different systems out there which do aspire to be the next uh, 3JS or, you know, uh, or there are a lot of different uh, 3D engines that uh, exist uh, in the WebGL space. So, right. um, yeah. Well, I mean, would you, you, I mean, are there any which uh, you, you would recommend as something to, to look into um, in, you know, at all? Um, so, yeah, so um, uh, maybe Hugh can explain a little bit about some of the different options for this. There, there's actually a lot of WebGL engines out there. There's um, CNGS, which I haven't had the chance to look into. Um, LightGL, uh, which seems okay. It's not too modular. Uh, Kami, which uh, one of our StackGL contributors is working on, like, a framework to take StackGL and make everything consistent and wrap it up nicely, kind of like three does. Um, OneJS, uh, it's a really promising project in terms of like the projects that could come out of it, uh, which essentially like mixes JavaScript and GLSL into the same language. Um, and he, I spoke to the author the other day, and he's really interested in modularity, but not so much in the NPM approach. Right. Another one that I have some experience with is there's uh, Glow. It's kind of older and uh, uh, not well-maintained, but um, it, it's sort of like a more shader-centric 3JS, so it's basically like focused primarily on writing like full-screen feedback effect type stuff. So it's pretty good if you want to do something like, uh, like write sort of a shader toy thing, but add feedback to it. Um, uh, it turns out to be somewhat less useful when you want to start drawing complicated geometries because of the uh, strange requirement that you have to like combine a geometry plus a shader into like one common like glow object. But it's low enough level that you can easily work around that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other ones out there too. Um, I guess uh, Unity is going to be getting HTML5 export, uh, and that will probably uh, change things quite a bit. Uh, because uh, there's a ton of work going on in Unity right now. I mean, even outside of like the WebGL world. So, yeah, that's probably going to be something to watch. Right. So, um, StackGL. What are the main components of StackGL? Tell, tell me about it. 
Well, the most important one is probably GLS LFI, which is actually uh, Chris Dickinson's project. So, oh. uh, so GLS LFI um, is sort of like Browserify for GLSL. Conceptually, you can uh, include other shaders um, using the same sort of like require syntax into your program using the same sort of like node modules resolution pattern. It was I started it. Uh, couple of years ago, and it was originally sort of like a, a very first step because before all the StackGL stuff, I was kind of like, well, I want to do small modules, and this sort of seemed like a good way to do it. And I had a little bit of uh, like sort of contrarianness uh, with it in that like I, I went to the WebGL channel and someone was like, that's a dumb idea. That'll never work. So, of course, I went off and I was like, okay, I'm going to write it, see if, see if it works. <laughs> um, so it's it's basically uh, allowing you to publish GLSL packages to NPM and then require them in other GLSL programs. Um, and it uh, slots in really nicely with uh, McCullough's work on the uh, GL shader core and GL shader, um, if he wants to talk about that some. Well, hang on. Uh, maybe we should just re reverse this, uh, a moment. And just for, for people who don't know, what is GLSL? Um, and you know what? What are shaders? So, back in the olden days of the fixed function pipeline in uh, OpenGL, you would just issue commands to the OpenGL runtime, and it would set up a certain state, and it would basically translate all the vertices you sent to it into screen space, rasterize them, and then let uh, draw certain pixels, fragments in a certain way. And what happened uh, shortly after OpenGL 1.2? I uh, think of the what, OpenGL 2.0 days, and what OpenGL ES is predicated on is uh, a programmable uh, pipeline that allows you to specify your own programs for the vertex uh, shading and the fragment shading. So what this means in practice is that you have control over what's running on the GPU when a given point, uh, like 3D um, XYZ coordinate comes in, uh, how that gets translated to the screen. And then you have further control where uh, when that is turned into a polygon and turned into fragments, basically like groups of pixels, uh, what gets actually drawn for those pixels. And it's all done in this sort of stripped down C dialect, with has, which has some primitives that um, work really well with, for this kind of math. Um, notably, they have uh, matrix math built in and vector math built in. And you can do things like, um, there's a term called swizzling as well, in that you can like look up uh, properties of these vectors and matrices using like dot xyz or dot yyz or whatever any permutation of those this is this is a crazy thing is that something that's uh, unique to glsl is, is that has that come from somewhere else because it, it's it's super cool uh as far as i know it's it's an invention of glsl um probably nice. came from uh the lineage of uh programming uh like shader languages before it before it got standardized into GLSL, which I'm not too uh, up on, but uh, yeah, it's it's got a lot of like neat tricks it can do, so to speak. Um, but it is a much more like restricted um, form of C in that you can't do any recursion or infinite loops. All loops have to be bounded, um, things of that nature, to make sure that like the the program is, can terminate. Um, and eventually output some sort of fragment or vertice or what have you. And and in GLSL, uh, is there any way to you know, so, for example, can I can I uh, you know include uh, you know standard I/O? 
No. Or is there, a, is there a way to include like <laughs> external libraries in, in GLSO? So the way to do that, so the base way to do that is you can concatenate all these things together yourself or you write your own sort of um, CPP, like C preprocessor-esque thing to go give you the ability to include another file. And then you run into the same problems as like C does where everything is sharing one global namespace, which is a little bit um, painful. <laughs> Um, so that's what the uh, goal of uh, GLS LFI is, is to give you that nice node-esque namespacing. So yeah, it's basically what it does to do that is it, it will pull in another module and mangle all of its names and uh, do uh, all the necessary like um, uh, song and dance to get that working correctly. It has a little bit more in there too, so you can inject names into uh, internal uh, namespaces, but uh, that's that's sort of like where that ends and uh, it kind of slots in nicely as a transform in Browserify that exposes uh, GL shader core uh, programs. Right. Okay. Um, so so I can go out and publish a you know a, a vertex uh, shader and uh, somebody else can require it in the vertex code in the same way. Um, as you would, you know, just n normally require something, but it works inside a shader. Yeah, so uh, yeah, really a few cool. people have uh, published things like uh, uh, noise functions. They're really nice um, that you can just pull into your vertex shader or your fragment shader. Um, and uh, yeah, I, actually, Hugh has done a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly um, porting a lot of like shader resources that I've like scoured across the internet for. Um, into NPM modules so that next time I have a project, I don't have to scour it through the internet again. Yeah, there's uh, like an awful number of like cool stuff on, you know, like on your shader toy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it'd be awesome if, if you know, a lot, a lot of the cool things that people are building were, um, you know, well, yeah, just reusable. Uh, I've often thought that a, you know, a nice... Um, you know, something like those, those code pens or something like that. If you could click a button and produce a, uh, you know, turn that into a reusable piece of code, um, that would be really cool. Like uh, you can go and do it all visually, and then somebody can come along and be like, "I want that," and can include it. Um, mm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so yeah, what, what what else is in StackGL? Um, well, yeah. So the 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 main part of you know WebGL is sort of uh, discussed as it's uh, basically the shaders, right? So um, you know with GLS Helify, we think we have a pretty good answer to the problem of how to reuse shader code. Um, so the next step is then to kind of you know just sort of streamline the whole uh, WebGL development so that going from like zero to three D engine becomes a very short path, right? So we can kind of like optimize and compress like really uh, common tasks and just make like the API less verbose and you know more consistent and uh, you know like less uh, easy to shoot yourself in the foot with it so to speak right um, so there's a, a collection of uh, modules which are maybe like just one small layer removed over the uh, uh, basic webGL API uh, and these would be very similar to things like LightGL or Glow, right? I mean, they're, you know, uh, a very low-level uh, set of wrappers. And so this is the uh, uh, 
there's like the the GL buffer uh, module, uh, GL texture 2D, GL FBO, and GL VAO. And what those all do collectively is they let you um, uh, upload you know vertex buffers to the GPU, create vertex array objects, uh, manage texture memory, and uh, create frame buffer objects, and then push pixels back and forth between them. Uh, and with that, that's pretty much the entire WebGL API right there, you know, combined with like the shader stuff, which is already handled through GLSLFI. Uh, and to support this, uh, they all make heavy use of ND Array, which is a system for working with uh, typed arrays as multidimensional arrays. And that simplifies the problem of creating like uh, interleaved vertex formats or uploading images and textures, you know, so you don't have to worry about like, is it transposed or is the stride correct or whatever. It just kind of uh, package it all up and then push it out onto there. So that's sort of like, um, you know, a more streamlined and uniform and uh, less verbose API for just doing the very same tasks that you do in WebGL, but just like, you know, one tiny layer above that. And, um, and then after that, we have uh, some higher level things. So there's some stuff for working with cameras and uh, some more specific shader effects. And then there's also some sort of like uh, quick start shells. So there's GL now and Game Shell. Uh, which are you know sort of evolving projects at the at this stage, right? Which basically handle like the input and um, you know just creating a context and just getting something like up and running really quick. So you can do something like just install a module and just run it and it'll just go. So uh, those are kind of like the the higher level parts. And uh, there's a lot more stuff to do you know after this. So um, uh, like you know Game Shell and GL now, as I mentioned, are kind of evolving. And one of the big ways that they're probably going to change is that those themselves will probably become split into tinier modules. Uh, and so the like input handling will probably be factored out into like a separate module. And there are some new ideas with how we might try to attack that and actually like make it like way simpler and easier to like even combine with something like uh, saving your keys for a replay or uh, working over a networked environment. Um, uh, there's also uh, the math libraries, which at the moment are kind of handled by GeoMatrix, but we're currently working on trying to make that itself more modular. So split it into tinier bits and then make each of the pieces uh, reusable and uh, requirable you know, from any type of location. So that was, uh, you can... uh, the math stuff, is that M-A-G-H? Yeah, maths, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah math, okay, cool. So, um, one of the nice things with GeoMatrix is that GeoMatrix uh, does not create any custom data types. GeoMatrix just uses arrays, and they can be either typed arrays or native, Java, native JavaScript arrays. And all it does is just define functions that you can implement on top of uh, native JavaScript arrays. And for someone who maybe would come from like a highly object-oriented programming background, this might seem uh, like a little bit crazy, right? Like, okay, like you're getting oh, rid of some objects. It's a very right? clunky API. Uh, like, you, you have to pass in the output, pass in the input, pass in any other inputs. It won't make any kind of like sensible defaults for you. Um, uh, I've been using it the last couple of days, and every time I'm like, oh, this is very verbose. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly for performance, I think. Yeah, but there are some real advantages, though, to um, using uh, the GeoMatrix style. The first is that it is better performance to use native arrays than... Uh, just object types, which I believe was the main motivation for why, why GeoMatrix made the choices that it did. But the other one is that 
from the perspective of interoperability, if you write things using just the native arrays or you know float32 arrays, uh, you can expect that your code is going to work uh, pretty much with anything else that can just pass and receive those things. So it's sort of like the lowest common denominator data type for representing matrices and vectors. And so in that sense, right. uh, you know, you don't end up with this kind of like, you know, infinite uh, boxing or unboxing, you know, at the boundary between two different frameworks or modules, right? So that's a huge, that's a huge win. And that's another uh, thing where it doesn't create any data for you. So, like, exactly. because that in in a game, well, uh, when you're dealing with like large, uh, large arrays, uh, you know, the the you know the big uh, usually the the problem is you know creating more of those large arrays, and um, because it doesn't, um, you know, if you want to create more, if you want to clone your data, you you have to clone it. Um, it won't do it for you. Um, so I, I think that's actually as much as it's painful, it like um, it it makes sense. Um, I just wish I didn't have to do it. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, also, like, you could implement stuff on top of GeoMatrix pretty trivially yeah. that could make it a lot more accessible, which is nice. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, another thing, too, is there's actually um, one kind of benefit I found uh, from using arrays instead of, like, you know, vectors with, you know, cute XYZ names is that uh, if you want to do some more complicated array operation, like, uh, say you want to like add something or you know like multiply it or you you know maybe you want to like linear interpolate them or maybe you have like some weird polynomial expression that you want to evaluate component wise um, for those types of operations it's easier to just write a loop if you have an array so you can just say like 4i equals 0 to 3 and whatever and writing a loop is way less error prone than copying and pasting the same line three times and then changing all the X's and Y's and Z's in each of them. Uh, and it's easier to maintain that. It's easier to keep it in sync and you don't run into these kind of like, uh, you know, weird glitches where like the last line is like out of sync or not doing the, the right thing. And so it ends up being um, a somewhat uh, more robust style, if you will, to write the code. Right. So I think that um, you know, using things which you can iterate using a loop with numerical indices uh, is a win over things that use uh, arbitrary, uh, you know, like English letters, right, to represent their properties, right? Because you know, you can have like an X Y Z vector, but maybe it's a color, then it becomes an R G B vector. Or maybe you're working in like a texture thing, is then it's like an S T U. And, you know, who knows, right? So you can just create, like, this infinite variation of, like, you know, cute English names for components. Or you can just use numbers. So, so. so just to be clear here, we're, we're talking about the difference between using an object with XYZ properties, um, which contain, like, uh, you know, uh, the, the values of, like, a position, for example, uh, versus a, an array with three elements in it, which just happen to be XYZ. Um, yeah, I mean, and one thing I, I when I first started working with Voxel JS, uh, I I noticed that it was using this format. Um, the well, I, I think at some point it switched over from using the dot x dot y dot z over to to the array syntax. And I remember thinking, oh, this is terrible. Uh, you know, I have to keep passing in zeros and ones and magic numbers. But I realized that there's nothing stopping me from just being like. Uh, you know, var capital X equals zero, var capital Y equals one, uh, etc. Um, so 
you know, the, the difference between, you know, object dot x and object, you know, square bracket notation x um, is pretty minimal. It, it's still readable. Um, and when you when you when you've got it a uh, got it in an array, you can do like super simple stuff. Like you know, if I want to multiply those numbers together, I can just you know I can do a map if I want. You you can't do a map over well you know, at least sen uh, in any kind of sensible uh, way. You can't do a map over an object uh, in in the same way. Um, so yeah, uh, totally agree with that. Yeah, and also if uh, you want to clone like an array, I mean you can also call dot slice on it, which is usually easier than implementing like a special clone operation for objects and uh, you know it ends up being like a little bit simpler so I, I think that just like in JavaScript if you want to do like low dimensional vector primitives just arrays are by far and away the best solution it's just not even worth bothering with objects you know and the other problem with objects is that um, there's always a tendency to do this sort of operator overloading thing. So you have like vector x dot add dot, you know, subtract or whatever. And so you, you know, sort of turn these expressions, uh, you know, that would normally be arithmetic into some weird chain of like method invocations. And the problem with that is that then if your vector implementation changes or gains or loses a method, then, you know, all of a sudden if you have like uh, something that returns a vector from an old version or whatever, then it's going to break with the newer version. And uh, for these and related reasons, that was actually partly why VoxelJS switched away from using uh, the 3JS uh, vector types to using just arrays, because then you don't have this you know, massive 3JS dependency, and you also don't have these kind of like capricious and breaking changes. You know? So it's uh, um, like returning a vector type is essentially a pure dependency at the end of the day, because if you are you know, relying on returning that thing, then you have to basically like lock your version or your API to that API, and if they you know bump a minor, you have to bump a minor, and if you know they like switch to a new major version, you have to switch to a new major version because uh, you're now exposing their interface by proxy through your module. Uh, so if you just you know like fix a standard interface that doesn't change and will never change, basically a native JavaScript array, then it's not even an issue. It's just you know. You don't have these kind of like weird peer dependency issues, right? Um, so, what else is on the roadmap for StackGL? I think I talked about this a little bit. Um, uh, basically, there's like a collection of things that I would like to see done. Uh, you know, like the uh, game shell overhaul, uh, redoing the cameras, and modularizing that. But uh, and then there's also a website too, which we're kind of putting together. So uh, Hugh has some stuff that he's done with that. Yeah, slowly but surely. It's one of those things. I did it um, a couple of weeks ago, and since then I just haven't been able to get everything together. But it, it's very close to being ready. The idea is to just like have all of the modules visible in one place and examples and tutorials and stuff like that so that it becomes a lot more cohesive than it is at the moment because uh, at the moment there's no clear direction where to start. You just kind of have to scour through what's available on GitHub. So hopefully this should make things more accessible for people. Right, and, and the website itself, is, is it going to be built in StackGL? Oh, of course. There's yeah. a, a little like um, animation there which just runs in a loop with some column things and a little bit of ambient oh. occlusion. <laughs> Crazy idea. Do you think we could get this deployed maybe this afternoon so that perhaps by the time this podcast goes live, uh, we could actually have a Stack GL website, possibly. Uh, yeah, 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 I can do that. 
All right, let's there we go. Peer pressure. Okay, so I'll, I'll help the way I can in order to get this happen. So let's. Uh, so if you want, yeah, yeah. So if you want to see an awesome example of uh, StackGL, you can just head on over to what address? Stack.gl. Stack.gl. Awesome. Uh, and are there other uh, examples of StackGL out there? Uh, yeah, so Plotly uh, is actually using it in their recently uh, deployed 3D visualization uh, graphing tools. So they now have uh, a full like 3D uh, scatter plot and surface plot uh, viewer, which is all using StackGL under the hood. And there are a couple other uh, projects uh, Hugh has worked on. So uh, yeah, so um, probably the the first project to use all of the StackGL stuff that we're using now uh, was the opening credits for Web Directions last year in Sydney. Um, and that was, that was a long project where I really, uh, just through necessity, had to get familiar with WebGL and the API. But it, it was really fun. Uh, you can find that online at run.south.im. That'll be yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And since then, like, there's been a couple of other websites which I've done, like the NodeSource website with Exclude that's using StackGL under the hood. And uh, CampJS, when its site is out, will be using that as well. Uh, hopefully that'll be out by the time this podcast goes up. So, yeah, camp, the CampJS.com site. Yeah. The, I, and I believe you're working on a, a blog post as well for the um, uh, explaining how, how you put together the NodeSource globe, fancy globe WebGL stuff. Yes. Is that correct yeah. to you? So that's also I, something to, to look out for. Yeah, the, the NodeSource code, like the, the site code will eventually be all open source. It's just a matter of like me getting around to putting together an article and running through everything and making sure it's all clean. So that'll be a good resource to like pick apart how everything works. Any other projects? I hope I'm not going to butcher like his Twitter handle, but there's uh, Greeweb, right? Uh, he has this uh, GLSL transition project, and that's using uh, bits of StackGL. And uh, also... Uh, uh, as I understand it, Matt Dessa-Laris is uh, working on some uh, project with Jam3. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty good. So there's like lots of um, uh, projects getting started out there, uh, lots of uh, new things happening. So. Uh, another cool thing which um, GreyWeb did was uh, WaveGL, which was uh, audio being generated on the GPU using shaders. And that's using StackGL stuff as well. Mm. Okay, so um, that brings us to our next sponsor spot. When you're ready. And yet is holding another of their front-end JavaScript training adventures next month, what they like to call JS Capades. If you haven't been to one yet, this is what one of their students has to say about the last one. I'm super impressed with how much care and thought went into all of this. Every bit of unexpected surprise made me smile, sometimes more than smile, but more importantly, shifted me out of whatever mode I might have been in had things been more normal. These efforts made us feel special and welcomed by allowing us to get to know what the And Yet crew is all about. Mutual respect and genuine love of what you all do is evidently awesome there, as is a strong sense of how much you all value community building. Thank you for extending this world to us and for truly living up to your name, Human JavaScript. Henrik Jorteg is going to be leading the next JS Capade on October 1st and 2nd, called Human JavaScript Live. It's a two-day intensive JavaScript workshop and training experience specifically designed to be the hands-on code-along and ask-questions-as-we-go version of the book Human JavaScript. You'll build a single-page app from the ground up in a modular way using best practices created and used by the team at And Yet Every Day. 
Everything for the two days is included. Hotel, meals, music, etc. But you can use the code NOTEUP to get $150 off. For more information, head over to live.humanjavascript.com or check out andyet.com and be sure to follow them on Twitter, at andyet. All right. Okay, so in this, in this next section, uh, let's talk about uh, you know, how, how does one get into this space? How, how do you learn about WebGeo? Now, how do you learn about StackGeo? Yeah, so we're currently working on building up the resources for teaching people how to use uh, StackGL. And um, because StackGL uh, builds on top of WebGL, the focus right now is on trying to increase the number of resources out there for learning just WebGL as it exists. And to this end, we've put together uh, a couple of uh, things. The most visible of them is Shader School, uh, which is a uh, Node School workshop that teaches you shader programming from the ground up. So it'll just teach you the GLSL programming language and how to write uh, code with that. Um, and so uh, Hugh has been uh, really active in building uh, a lot of that. So uh, maybe you can explain a little bit more. Yeah, that was really fun to write. It actually ended up with like 1,600 modules in its tree, which I think in any other community would be kind of disgusting. But it's okay here. But yeah, like the, the basic idea was that we would give people simple problems and just display like what they needed to reach with their shader and what they started off with. And they had to make both of them match. And so that was a good chance to like flesh out a lot of the stuff under the hood with GLSLify and Browserify. Um, we're, we're working a bit more on like making it uh, the learning curve a bit smoother. Because at the moment, like from our experience, a lot of people found they had a bit of trouble picking up the mass early on. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one of the yeah, yeah. I think that uh, there there's probably uh, some room for improvement in Shader School, and I wouldn't uh, consider the current version to be really the final product uh, necessarily. So there's still a lot of iteration, you know, that uh, can be uh, done there. Um, I, I think though that. Probably some of the math stuff will be kind of like pulled out, maybe, or like moved into a sort of a separate thing, and uh, some of the early lessons will be split up a little bit. So, you know, just kind of uh, adapting to where people, uh, you know, were sort of getting stuck, you know, and kind of smoothing out the difficulty curve. Yeah. So I think there's like a lot of stuff that can be kind of improved in there, but what we already have is pretty good. I mean, mostly thanks to the excellent work that he was put into it. The follow up for this, though, which will be uh, hopefully presented at CampJS is uh, the WebGL workshop. So this basically picks up where Shader School leaves off and teaches you the fundamentals of WebGL programming. So once you understand how GLSL works and how to write shaders, uh, which you know hopefully you'll get through Shader School, uh, WebGL takes you through the next set of steps, which is how to actually write the WebGL code that can take those shaders and get them to draw things and talk to the uh, graphics card and you know do interesting stuff so uh, and then at the end of that you should basically have like a full set of tools for just writing arbitrary webgl uh, applications and uh, probably going forward from there then there will be some tools that explain how uh, webgl or how uh, stackgl would basically build on top of this so so the educational materials are you know coming together and you know bit by bit and eventually we should have a fairly comprehensive uh, set of them cool uh, and what about uh, you know in lieu of all of the StackGL uh, learning material coming together, I mean, what what else can uh, people look at? 
one example would be the Udacity course, uh, which it, it uses 3JS, but is focusing mostly on just getting the, the theory there. But it, it's been pr pretty popular from what I've been able to tell. There's also um, learningwebgl.com, which has, like, it started out as the uh, OpenGL tutorials by Nehe, uh, and they were just ported to WebGL. And since then, it's been expanded into, like, oh, well over 20 different lessons just to pick up the fundamentals of everything. I think Tim's been trying that recently. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I found them. Um, I've been kind of like combining uh, those lessons with ones from other lesson uh, from other books and things like that. Because um, I mean, m most of them go, kind of go through the same process. Like they'll start with, all right, you know, drawing some triangles, drawing some squares on the screen, just doing two D stuff, and then you know, make a three D thing, add some lighting, uh, add some textures, you know, rotate that stuff you know, et cetera. So uh, I, I find that uh, it, it helps, you know, because nobody covers like content awesomely straight off. Like it, no, nobody's the best tutor. And I also find that if you're combining tutorials, they're going to do things slightly differently and you're going to copy code and it's not going to work straight away from one tutorial to the other. Um, so this is just kind of like a, a, a general how I learn technique. But, um, yeah, moving stuff around from different tutorials where it breaks and it forces you to fix it, uh, I find um, it forces you to actually understand what the code does. Um, so uh, you know, rather than just co copying and pasting the code uh, and just letting it go, uh, you're, you're copying and pasting broken code, and it also simulates more, you know more realistic uh, you know use of you know because when when you're doing stuff uh, in the real world, it's always broken. So. Uh, it's kind of get gets you get your hands dirty with debugging and trying to understand all right what are the kinds of problems that we're going to have we're going to have you know I don't know problems so yeah I don't know I found them to be to be okay the learning webgl ones but they're also not up to date I don't think they've been updated for two years or something like that so for the um, all of the the gl matrix code is kind of out of date doesn't work so um, you kind of have to adapt. Uh, adapt the lessons, um, but ho hopefully this new the the WebGL stuff that uh, you guys are putting together um, will be um, you know uh, it w will replace the the need for the learning WebGL tutorials. Hopefully, fingers Any crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean a, a good thing about the the WebGL stuff is that it, it's all OpenGL. So you know a, a lot of the code that you see that's OpenGL. You know, it's very easy to port it just straight over to WebGL, and, and that's really nice. Mm. Like all the, uh, I mean, uh, my I've got like some I've got a documentation viewer thing on my computer for the Mac, um, and you know, it's just uh, it, it documents all the OpenGL stuff because there's no documentation for this tool for WebGL. But all of the all of the uh, you know, I can look up. The WebGL functions um, using the OpenGL documentation, um, and it makes you know mostly makes sense. So uh, I, I keep seeing stuff about GPU gems, and w what is that? So uh, GPU gems is a series of books uh, that I think uh, Nvidia uh, is involved in publishing, or uh, one of the major graphics card companies. And basically, they just outline uh, cutting-edge techniques for uh, like uh, writing shaders. 
so they have like you know specific problems that people have tried to solve and then the sort of algorithms and you know technologies that they use to implement it and make it work uh, the the gems term is sort of a follow-on from the uh, uh, classic graphics gem series which is you know from a long 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 time ago like in the 90s and 80s and uh, uh, these were a series of books that were very popular uh, and explained uh, a bunch of like different techniques in computer graphics so those were you know widely read and distributed you know back in the day uh, and then there are, there are other gem series so there's also uh, game programming gems which is like a series of like you know like articles on game programming and like collected wisdom about that so gpu gems sort of followed in that tradition uh, and there are also other like books that are similar you know collections of like articles and you know best practices or tricks and things that people have used for uh, writing uh, shaders so there's like shader x but it's more sort of focused on the direct x side of it you know but there are other types of uh, there are other books out there that kind of do the same thing but um, right. So uh, yeah. I found that um, you know most of these tutorials they they do get you going uh, hands on. Like, uh, are there places that I can go to view view people's code that they've already done? Like, you know, get more more examples of good shaders. Shader okay, yeah. toy is cool. Yeah, shader toy has got um, a huge amount of like really impressive shaders. Uh, so like the ray tracing. <laughs> ray tracing stuff that Tim was talking about before. Basically, they just give you like a um, two triangles and you have to draw the entire scene yourself using GLSL. But there's some great examples there. Um, another good example would be GLSL Sandbox, which is great for like picking up the basics of shaders. Like If you're just getting started, Shader Toy is super intimidating. <laughs> But GLSL Sandbox, on the other hand, like it's really easy to get started. You don't need to sign up for an account, and yeah, it, it's got like a good range of like very simple techniques to the more advanced stuff that you're more likely to see on Shader Toy. Right, and that and that's by the guy who wrote Three JS, right? Yeah, so that's Mr. Dude's project. Yeah, cool. So the tricky thing about both of these is that shaders are. Yeah, I mean, you can do some really, really interesting stuff with shaders, like fragment shaders. That's what I think the primary focus of um, both of these sites are about, but without like texture data or you know vertex data or anything like that, it um, it's kind of limiting. So that's where Shader Toy comes in. It's like it provides you with a lot more. It provides you with like sound samples and all kinds of other crazy stuff that you can actually run like processing over. So it actually you can actually do more interesting stuff with Shader Toy. But as Hugh said, um, GLSL um, Sandbox is also useful for like simple kind of effects. Shader Toy's also got um, audio generation now, which is pretty cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. So you can sync everything up with the visuals. All right. And so and where else can I get uh, you know, examples of like cool, you know, how to do web, WebGL stuff? Well, um, eventually on StackGL, we're going to have uh, more modules that will actually do things in WebGL. So little snippets of WebGL code that will solve you know, some specific problem, noise generation or ray marching or... 3D texture indexing or whatever, uh, and you'll you know eventually be able to just like uh, you know pull up those module pages and then look at them and you know copy and paste the snippet in and you know do that sort of thing. So uh, uh, over time, uh, we'll hopefully have more of that stuff. Uh, there's already a couple out there, so I think there's like um, you know some stuff for like Perlin noise and a couple of other things for like floating point feedback and so on. But it's uh, slowly growing. Three.js right. also has like a, a really good collection of examples on its on its website. Um, probably showing like the most popular 
projects that have been that have come out of that framework. And Echo.net has a couple of uh, blog posts, and if you check out his site, the the header is probably one of the most impressive WebGL tech demos I've ever seen. And he has blog posts explaining a lot of the stuff that he does, and it's good for more uh, advanced techniques. I believe he's one of the developers that came from the, the Flash world and has um, been you know making waves in the 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 open web world. Uh, oh, cool! Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Mm. Chris, uh, Brandon, if you've, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, Brandon Jones uh, does a lot of cool stuff. He actually works on the uh, the team that implements WebGL at, on Chrome, uh, and his blog uh, blog tojicode.com, t o j i code.com, uh, has a lot of really cool like uh, examples of how to use extensions. Um, a couple of cool ideas about how to implement tile engines and stuff like that. He did a really neat demo where he had a uh, sort of slippy map of uh, all of Legend of Zelda and as well as the Super Nintendo Legend of Zelda, which is nice. really, really neat. Um, and uh, Pilot, or uh, on IRC, he's uh, double underscore doc, double underscore in the WebGL channel. Uh, his CodeFlow site has a lot of really interesting like documentation on the techniques to do like deferred rendering and things like that uh, with code examples. Cool. Chrome Experiments also has like some really good examples. I'm not sure how many of them are open source, but it gives you a good idea of like what is actually possible with WebGL, and it's good for inspiration. The the nice thing as well with StackGL is that a lot of the code that comes out of it isn't too specific to the way things are done uh, with our stuff. So it's good for picking out like isolated examples of how you do specific techniques without having to worry about too much of the framework stuff that's going on in the background. Cool. So uh, links to all that stuff will be available in the, in the show notes. Um, now, if you, if you guys had a, a single thing which people should um, do in order to, to learn this stuff, what, what do you reckon that would be? Um, just get started. Just pick the first thing that you think you can do and kind of makes sense to you or that seems reasonable and just try it. And just keep trying and, you know, push yourself a little bit farther, you know. Just always push just outside your comfort zone a little bit more. And if you just can do that consistently. I mean, you can go pretty far, but you know you have to kind of gauge that distance uh, well. Uh, I think if you're just getting started with WebGL in the first place, I think the Shader School and uh, WebGL Workshop, which should be out there soon, are fantastic resources. And so you can just pick those up and work through them. And that's a really great place to do that. And if you want to get involved with um, uh, StackGL, you can also just hop on IRC uh, in the StackGL channel, and uh, uh, I'm usually out there, and there's plenty of other people hanging around, and uh, you know I will try to help you get started and you know figure things out and answer questions. Yeah, I have to. You know, I give you a big thumbs up for being. You know, you, you're uh, very useful. I, I often uh, I remember back when you know in the Voxel JS I was trying to build a thing, and then you'd. You'd answer me, and I'd have to, I'd spend an hour going looking up articles on Wikipedia, try just to try to make sense of what you said. But it was it was not not that it wasn't it wasn't con- confusing. It was just that it was like like the perfect answer with all of the right information, and I just wasn't ready for it yet. Yeah. So uh, just just a uh, I don't know. You, I think you're you're an awesome resource on IRC. So good. All right, so I guess that draws us to a close. Really, you know, we should wrap this up. So, do you guys want to? Um, you guys want to plug something? I'll, I'll throw a plug out there for Plotly, since they've been kind of, uh, you know, partially supporting uh, some of the work that I've done through StackGL. 
they have uh, a pretty nice little uh, data visualization package uh, that's all JavaScript, and they have backends that can talk to MATLAB and Python. Uh, and it's definitely worth checking out if you're um, going to be doing some sort of scientific computing or anything where you need to graph something. So nice. I'd like to plug Node School Amsterdam, which um, I organize. <laughs> We've been trying to sort of round up a bit more of a Node community in Amsterdam, and. Yeah, the next one is all about graphics, so you should come along if you're interested in that stuff. And I'd like to plug uh, Thunder Plains Conf, which is happening October 9th in Oklahoma City, o Oklahoma. It's going to be sort of a general purpose JavaScript conference. Uh, full disclosure, I'll be speaking there about some control flow graph stuff, but it's really cool to see like the developer community sort of growing in the Midwest. So yeah, if you're in that area, you should check it out. I'd like to plug um, a little project that I've been working on um, called livecad.wtf, and that stands for Wow, That's Fun. And basically, it's like an open um, SCAD-like editor that allows you to um, edit geometry and procedurally generate it, and you know, 3D surfaces, 3D objects. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I'm going to plug something which is absolutely nothing to do with any of this stuff. Um, so. I did a I did a, a note up with Dominic Denicola and he, he plugged a book he was reading so I'm gonna do the same because it made him sound cultured so uh, I'm reading a there's all this stuff going on in the Middle East and I don't I'm, I'm completely ignorant to it so I started reading a book called um, the Great War for civilization by Robert Fisk it's a very large book uh, and it, he's a reporter and he goes over into the Middle East and he's Talking, it's a, it's a like a, it's a real. It's not like a fiction book. It's a, he's a reporter reporting about stuff, uh, and he's written this big book about just how messed up the Middle East is. It's a horrible, horrible situation, um, and uh, I, I recommend you know giving it a read if, if if you find like myself you know being you know you see all the stuff on the news and you want a bit more of a um, a, a less media bias view of what's actually happening and there's something in depth um, yeah I absolutely recommend The Great War for Civilization by Robert Fisk oh, great book alright so this brings us to upcoming events so Thunderblains Conf which has just been mentioned um, is happening on October 9th in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City you can go to thunderplainsconf.com to find out information about that CampJS4 is coming up October 31st to November 3rd. Go to campjs.com for that. I believe a number of the uh, members of this call will be at that conference and uh, they'll be presenting WebGL-related stuff. There's November coming up. Well, hang on. Uh, point about CampJS, it's, yeah, it's in Australia. It's in Brisbane. So if, if you're interested in coming out and checking out our dangerous wildlife, we've got plenty of it. Come to Camp JS. So yeah, Nodevember happening November 15th to 16th. It's in Nashville. Um, go to nodevember.org to find out more about that. JSConf Asia is coming up November 20 to 22nd. And you can find out more. It's in Singapore. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be a pretty, pretty massive event. They've got like lots of great speakers. Yeah, uh, 2014.jsconf.asia. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a really great conference. Um, I, I, I really believe in the guys um, who are organising that. So, so that's the end of the WebGL note up. Thanks everybody for participating. Anybody who's listening, please leave leave a review uh, in iTunes for the, the note up podcast. That helps with the, the rankings. Helps us. Please follow NodeUp on Twitter. Um, and if you're interested in sponsoring NodeUp, email NodeUp at gmail.com for more info. All right. Thanks.